0: Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Justin and Matt following the recent interview with uh, Andrew McLuhan. Uh, We pick up on some of the ideas from that interview and end up in some, yeah, some interesting places. A day or two later, uh, I received a voicemail from uh, Matt to which I responded. Um, and so you'll you'll hear that in here as well. So we've got a little game of telephone on the back end of uh, the debrief that we did with McLuhan. So hope you enjoy. I especially hope this makes sense. <laughs> um, all right, peace.
1: The one yeah. I wanted to pick up on was when he was talking about things making other things possible. Like the once it happens, once it becomes infinitely more possible, mm. I was mm. thinking about, um, wait, wait, there's... wait, before you say it, morphogenic resonance. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. nerd no, I was, 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 was going to go more mundane. I was going to go with a um, motocross. Um, if you watch like contemporary motocross, they're just like, they do flips all the time. Right. Like if you're doing like the stunt version, not, not the races, but if you go back to like the eighties, Um, there were actually scientific studies that were published that said flipping a motorcycle is physically impossible. The physics make it, you know, the shape and et cetera, et cetera. It's just not physically possible to flip a motorcycle. And then you have this dude in like 92 who's like, eh, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. (laughs) Um, And he did it. And then suddenly they were like, oh, wow, it is. It it turns out it's actually quite possible. Uh, Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm getting...
0: I have this vision of like some guy in a basement somewhere in a lab coat in front of the, uh, the big green chalkboard who has sorted out how it's not possible. He's just confounded. He's confounded. <laughs> so he just starts erasing it. He's like, fuck yeah. my whole career.
1: <laughs> yeah. He has a TV on in the corner and you can see like the X games in the background and he he's yeah. chalk on the floor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh.
1: But yeah, sorry. So that was just like one little thing where, when yeah. he was talking about that, I was like, yeah. I mean, but it's. I think there is something true and profound about that, right? Like mm-hmm. this, this weird moment where somebody does something and then it becomes infinitely possible. I think you see this really good in like Olympic games and things like that. So you would think in the span of history, you know, somebody would break the record for like the 100-meter dash or whatever. Um, you know, maybe in like 1950 and then somebody break it again in the 70, and then somebody break it again like, you know, 40 years later. You would think they would kind of space apart over time because as the record keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter, it'll be harder and harder to break it. But what you seem to actually see, uh is somebody will break it in like 2009 and then somebody will break it again in 2011 and then 12 and then 13 and then 14. And there's this sense in which the sort of infinite capacity of humans just seems to explode. Like once we see that something's possible, we just can we do all, it.
0: We all it's, do it. Amazing. To go back to the morphogenetic resonance thing. Um, who's, who's the guys, the British. Oh, uh, Oh, Sheldrake. It's sort of people, uh, write it off as pseudoscience. I read it a while back, but the, the basic <laughs> idea was that they are fields among different kinds of species or different kinds of things that exist, right? So I'm not sure I buy into it, but it's an interesting idea. It's sort of like this weird Platonism where it's almost like a, a collective unconscious, but it's less mythological, more ontological where exactly as you're saying somebody does something that nobody else does and then suddenly within you know a short amount of time everyone can do it right it's almost like everyone has tapped into this sort of platonic realm of experience or something like this
2: but what what drives that because to me it comes back to the you know you're asking a the theological question you know like what, what is it that drives all this movement and uh, i don't know where i'm going looking for all that like uh, it, you know is it um is it like you know we talked about Stiegler and this sort of technicity that almost has its own uh drive, or is it a kind of autopoiesis evolutionary drive? Or are we talk- is this is this just economics that complexifies and accelerates? You know, I don't want to reach for uh, God, but I feel like I'm I'm looking for something like that to kind of explain how on earth this kind of acceleration happens you know what's driving it i think there's a there's a joy
0: in discovering new modes of articulation new new movements Uh, i'm thinking of like spinoza here it's been too long since i read my spinoza (laughs) i think there is a sort of innate and maybe that's a way of kind of explaining away the phenomenon you're wanting to describe, but an innate impulse to increase one's reach, increase one's movements, yeah. because there's not to be too perverse about it, but it's it's pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a, you get a feeling of power. You feel uh, a sense of uh, expansion and and so on. So, uh, And, you know, I, and but, I
1: think you can see that in like day to day life when you look at like something like depression. Right. <laughs> when do I feel most depressed? It's not when a series of bad things are happening to me. Right. I feel most depressed when my life seems like it's lacking novelty. Right. So it's, you know, you'll go through a stretch of like four weeks where, you know, you wake up and you go to work and you finish work and you go home and you watch Netflix and you go to sleep and you wake up and you go to work and da, 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 and it goes on. And that that when you lose novelty for me, that's that's like when you feel it. And then, you know, suddenly you you go to a concert that you weren't expecting to go to. And it's an awesome or you discover a new band or or even it can be something like completely mundane. You know, you discover a really good TV show that you had never heard of. Uh, and suddenly it's something to be invested in. And there's that novelty, I think, Inc. Enlivens life in a pretty radically and pro- profound way.
0: Yeah. And to tie in what we've been reading of Stiegler, I didn't want to bring it up with Andrew. Like he said, that the, the subtitle is The Extensions of Man. And I think what we're reading in, in Stiegler wants to sort of complicate that a little bit and problematize that. And it's not just The Extensions of Man, it's that man is constituted by the objects that he creates, uh, surrounds himself with, it's not so linear. It doesn't go in one direction. This is a mut- mutual constitution. Yep. And so thinking about the development of um, technology over the span of human history, yes, there's this sort of f- theological dimension, neurological dimension to discovery and the feeling of expansion. And this is why I'm saying the religion of progress is probably the most embedded within us, not only as a, as a, as a culture, but as well, maybe I'm just speaking for Western culture, but I I don't want to speak for the species. That's like too much. I can't speak for the species. (laughs) That's just above my pay grade. (laughs) But as a white man, I will speak for the West with you know Matt, some, Matt, some so to be clear
1: 7 billion people is too much but like 3.5 yeah i
0: can I, yeah that's my limit that's my threshold you know i'm i'm humble i'm nothing if not humble <laughs> Does
2: that make uh, sense, though? Yeah, it does. I'm thinking of um, Latour there because, uh, you know, he writes, um, we have never been modern to try and understand and then debunk the idea of modernity, which is essentially a temporality based on the idea of progress. Uh, And um, for Latour, that notion of time, In other words, a time that is progressing and that requires a fundamental break in order for there to be something that came before this new moment of progress uh, is essentially the sorting of objects. And so how we sort the uh, things that we are uh, interacting with in life is how we make sense of our life in terms of time. Because I was thinking about the medium is the message and, and the idea of media and this it, it sort of relationship to the idea of mediation. Because one of the ways that Latour then talks about that is that it's actually the, the translation of human and non-human, the, the translation of nature and society together. For Latour, translation is a mediatory process that actually is what really constructs the world. And then we kind of sort that mentally into different categories, and that creates our notion of time, but we could sort quite differently. So I I suppose all that just makes me think, is acceleration and this feeling that we have that time is speeding up, that technological innovation is speeding up, uh, is that really a construction that we've created? Uh, it's just another way that we've sorted all the objects that we uh, live within and are part of ourselves into a, a version of time that's speeding up. But we could sort them differently uh, because they're actually just being translated, mediated. Um, they offer different ways to read the situation.
0: No, I think that's exactly right. And I I, I think the only thing that I would add to that as a sort of problematic is in the way that we understand technology to have agency Right. And so that that, that's really the question is, like, to what degree do we have the power to intervene in what seems to be a very long process that is um, that is seemingly controlled by human activity that seems to be centered around human activity as the locus for its development. But in a new materialist reading of that, it's like, well, are we really in fucking control of this? It really calls into question the idea of of human agency and and it sort of disrupts and upsets my ability to talk about this in in any sort of not meaningful sense, but in any sort of sense where I feel very confident about what I'm saying, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. And I think that, that in, in uh, McLuhan and in uh, Latour, you have the idea of a distributed agency, but in different ways. I haven't read much McLuhan. So this has been interesting as a kind of uh, part refresher and part just giving me new things, to be honest, uh, that I hadn't encountered before. But I think the idea of the, in McLuhan of the kind of the background, you know, the environment, that the, 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 this is where agency is. It's not just in the human, in what appears in the foreground or, or in the figure and and so there's there's agency everywhere, and our own sense of agency is not um we're not completely without it, but it's um it, it's limited and it's lost in a network or a, an ecology of things where we're subjected to the agency of the material world and and its own kind of forces that we just don't really understand. I mean, to me, that is theological ecology, if you like. That there's this movement and power and force at work that we don't know how to handle. But it's not the same as saying, uh, like, natural theology. Like, there's nature over here with this kind of godlike power that's outside the human. It's like we are embroiled and tied up and extended into it, um, and, and we don't know what to do with it.
0: No, I think I think that's really good. It brought to mind what Andrew was saying about the maelstrom, right? That there's these sort of countervailing forces within that, there's a sort of indeterminacy, but that the undecidability that maybe appears does not sort of, you know, to invoke Winquist doesn't mean that we can't decide on, on our ethics. And my initial impulse when throwing down this line of inquiry and this kind of conversation is I wanted to sort of just like, well, I'm going to be a Luddite. I'm going to fucking go in a cave and just like live an authentic human life. You know, Um,
1: I'm going to throw this motherfucker.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think the question that's coming up for me is if the medium is the message, then what is the medium that we either need to be creating? Is there a new form of media that we can be creating or bringing the notions of agency and medium together? Can we almost recruit
1: media as agents for our own purposes, if that makes sense? So I think this connects to some thoughts I've been having, which is I think there's some complexity to this that emerges out of the undecidability about where the boundaries of any given medium, like where those boundaries lie. Right. Cause there's part of me that's like, I think if you follow this train of thought long enough then what you actually discover is there is a medium and it's called the universe right yeah, because yeah. you know if you want to make sense of say social media for example through like a McLuhan framework you you're not just talking about software that you know pops up on your phone or on your computer or whatever you need to be talking about these larger frameworks and networks and materiality comes in and so next thing you know you're talking about like Honduran lithium mines and like (laughs) rare earth minerals that we need for our iPhones that they're mining in the Congo, which suddenly gets you into economics and slavery and these like massive global systems. And like pretty soon it's like, oh, like to understand social media, you have to understand everything right you know this yeah. is it reminds me of uh recently jordan peterson had that like really bullshitty line about um climate he was he was in some interview uh i think it was joe rogan actually <laughs> he's on on rogan's podcast and he said something like climate models can't be right because climate is everything and you can't model everything or something like that um which is obviously like a bullshit claim about like why we should ignore climate change but at the other end like there is something like sort of true about that i think when we're thinking about the clown right how do you make sense of social media without it being about everything cuz like can you make sense of social media without talking at the same time about children mining in congo and also like kim kardashian right there are Equally relevant to making sense of social media. Um, And so I I apologize. I feel like I've lost the thread of your original question. But for me, this brings up, I think, some real complexity about where these boundaries are. And I think it starts to dissolve. Like, are we subjects or are we objects of social media? And I think the answer is like, we're both right. And I think this is true of all media.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point you're making. And I think that, but to sort of engage with that and negotiate that, because I think what you're saying is true. The metaphor that I've been adopting for this sort of thing, whether it's in terms of like we've been talking about origins recently, where do you start and where do you end? Like there's a certain utility in the circling of the compass, right? Because you need to have a point of leverage. Otherwise, you end up in, the, in exactly like you're saying. It's just like, oh, everything is everything. And you throw your hands up and it's like.
2: <laughs> but I don't think it's everything. So I, I okay. think it's, it's mines in the DRC. It's Kim Kardashian. It's uh, server farms. It's offshore tax havens. We can make an incredibly complex, long list of things that understanding social media involves but I don't think that that list is the same as everything. So it's, it's definitely complexified, uh, and so it's definitely a very complex hybrid that couldn't be separated out into uh, sort of uh, traditional standard categories of nature, culture, or subject objects and so on. So yeah. Latour makes the point, it, it, the, the reason he wants to talk about networks is that he doesn't want to talk about territory. So he's saying, you know, territory is like a big space uh, which is then covered by a border or a boundary, but a network is a, a line that is connecting certain points and so understanding social media it involves this network that takes you from all these different places to all these different other places and joins them up translates them together in ways that you wouldn't expect but that's not the same as covering every single square foot of, of planet earth and yeah. i think that's quite important because because then you know i was thinking back to our um Uh, interview Matt with uh, with Tim Ingold that we did on the show he doesn't like the idea of Latour's network because he wants to take more of a kind of idea of lines that that you're tracing the movement and then the lines end up becoming knotty so there are certain places like you know in a mine in the DRC there's a knot Uh, you know in the Cayman Isles there's a knot in San Francisco there's a knot where these lines come together and get tangled up uh, right. But they don't. It doesn't cover everything, and uh, to me, that's a. Di- it's a different way of thinking about um, to say if, you know, a very complex system is not the same. It's a mesh work. It's not the same as a a territory. Well, I think that's a really interesting and
0: possibly helpful way to kind of just how to frame out these different issues because it is a form of cartography. Right. But it's not of the sort of variety where we understand that the map is the territory. Right. It's just like right. we've got maps and we've got maps and we've got other maps. And like, what is the usefulness of this map? What does the circling of the compass, as I like to say, what does it draw inside and what does it leave outside? Because that that is a choice.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a different map. And I suppose it, um, in terms of mediation, if who would ever say, how do we translate minds in the DRC with Kim Kardashian? Uh, but actually, if you follow that map, the pathway, the lines lead from, the, from one point to the other, that creates a, um, uh, a question that you start asking that you wouldn't have asked otherwise, which I, I suppose to me, that's perhaps the way of understanding the medium is the message. In terms of how andrew was explaining it by following the media specifically you're uncovering the pathway that's emerged that gives you this insight into the in, into the functioning of the world that you didn't see before that, that, that's how i understood what he was saying yeah justin
0: you win it to win it or
2: <laughs> i'm pretty good
0: <laughs> matt thanks for jumping in this was it was great to have you
2: yeah thanks for inviting me yeah, it's good yeah. to be part of it. Have a good one, y'all. All right, Joe. Bye.
1: Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system at the tone please record your message when you have finished
0: recording you may hang up or press one for more options
2: hey matt uh enjoyed the uh andrew McCluren episode um i was thinking about our conversation with justin afterwards and um i had some more thoughts so i thought i'd just send them to you just to continue the conversation really so I was thinking about near the end of that discussion when we were saying, we took the example of social media and uh, I think it was Justin made a comment that it kind of takes in everything. And uh, I I said uh, it, it's not everything because it's actually specific things, specific connections. I just wanted to riff on that a little bit more because... Because I think that plays to something that I've been thinking about quite a lot in relation to, well, partly in relation to radical theology, but more about the discourse rather than the specific ideas. So, in one sense, saying that social media takes in everything is a really valuable statement I think because what it's saying is you have to consider all of the categories of um, being thought social organization Uh, you can't just say it's just this thing or it's just that thing but there's something about the discourse of categorization that takes something specific Or or a few specific points and then turns it into an abstraction, which then becomes a type. And I think when I mentioned that Latour's uh, argument is we need to start talking about networks and the connections between networks rather than territories. That's what he's trying to get at, that actually there are specific things that have specific relationships and specific histories and the abstraction that turns that specificity into a type is essentially turning a line or a pathway into a territory. So you know Deleuze much better than I do and I am unclear how in Deleuze the idea of a line relates to the idea of territorialization and de So perhaps that is an idea that's already addressed uh, and I'm just slow to that party. But I kind of came to that via Ingold because it's Ingold who talks about the lines as kind of wayfaring its movement, uh, which is an idea he takes from Deleuze. But I suppose it's an epistemological uh, disposition or uh, an epistemological decision to follow specific pathways as an approach to knowledge-making, versus uh, mapping territories as a way of categorizing. And I noticed that particularly in radical theology, in the discourse of radical theology, and this is maybe just a very general point, I think it's a very Anglo way of talking. and actually, as a Brit, I would say particularly a North American way of talking, to take something and turn it into a type. I think that you see that in the way, for example, that Derrida gets picked up by Yale University, you know, where where Derrida becomes a big deal in the US. And the discourse in the US around Derrida is much more about the categories of Derrida knowledge around deconstruction uh, and so on. Whereas if you read Derrida, all of these ideas are played out through very close literary readings or dismantling of, um, you know, close readings of philosophical texts and so on. Um, I had the same uh, issue with Homi Baba, who I mentioned to you before, uh, the post-colonial theorist. Uh, who I work with for my uh, master's work in the US. Baba is hybridity, ambivalence, uh, and the other thing I've forgotten, uh, and um, mimicry. But if you read Baba, those categories are kind of produced ever so tentatively. They sort of emerge from close readings of literary texts. I suppose I've come to radical theology via biblical studies, and in biblical studies you're always dealing with narratives. And so then you're always tracing very particular storylines. And I, I just noticed the difference between that and people who've come to radical theology via philosophy, which tend to create abstractions and types and categories. So I'm not saying that, you know, one is right and one is wrong. I just, uh, I think it's an interesting difference in how discourse progresses. Um, And I think particularly as, you know, you and I have tried and others have been trying to wrestle with the thing that we call new materialism, where those meaning, uh, those lines of meaning have to be traced materially, is the tracing of the materially that, ends up sort of forcing you to become specific and the reason that that all seemed relevant to me in the discussion about the medium is the message is because of what Andrew said about uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Maelstrom to begin with The Maelstrom seemed like this overwhelming total force but in fact when you pay attention there are specific lines of movement um, in that case that go in the opposite direction that allow you a way out. But that was the thing that prompted the the thought about the difference between following lines and being really specific and the creation of abstract categories because, and maybe this is a relationship with new materialism, uh, because in that sense, um, following the specific movement of media uh, of meaning through media in its broadest sense uh, is a way of tracing those lines but that that isn't necessarily the same as being able to turn those into evaluative categories of knowledge and I was thinking there particularly of uh, Anna Tsing's uh, The Mushroom at the End of the World um, which we've mentioned together because one of the key arguments that she has in that book uh which you know is ostensibly an ethnographic study of the Matsutake mushroom trade just incredibly uh niche in one sense but her whole point is that um that modern knowledge re- relies on scalability and that some things just don't scale and so if you follow the very specific you follow the very um, you, you you follow those very detailed material lines between mushroom pickers in the Northwest Pacific forests of Oregon, through to matsutake's gift giving in uh, Japanese elite culture, for example. That isn't necessarily something you can just scale up into evaluative categories. It becomes that the value is in fact in the description as a form of knowledge and i suppose i just think that's an interesting if we were to try and work out how the medium is the message relates to something like radical theology one one potential implication is thinking about the issue of scale uh, and andrew was talking about um You know, like I asked him the question about light bulbs, you know, if I turn on the light bulb in a room that has one scalar impact, which is very different from the light bulb as an invention having a scalar impact of 24 hour factories. The specific detail of how one small thing scales up to a big thing uh, seemed to me to be involved in that tracing of the way out of the maelstrom. Because you can't necessarily take one thing and scale it up into one giant implication, which is not to say that giant implications like twenty-four hour factories is also not a valuable uh, evaluative category. I don't know if any of that makes sense, Matt. But it was just—it was just—I suppose it just got me thinking about different scales of knowledge and different discourses that allow for different types of insight. I suppose. And uh, uh, in terms of radical theology, the extent to which radical theology is able to trace very specific lines of meaning versus making broad brush theological claims. Yeah, Maybe, I mean, to be honest, I thought this before. I had the uh, radical theology seminar the other night, and then one of the things that Jordan was saying that was quite interesting was about the provincial nature of radical theology and the specific localized almost individual reflection uh, a political theological reflection so I suppose that is one example of trying to take something right down to a very specific instance rather than a broad brush claim Uh, anyway I don't know how helpful any of that is but it was just what came to mind so I thought I'd share it Uh, all right looking forward to talking more Stiegler soon and uh, take care
0: an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. Hey Matt, thanks for your message. Um, I always appreciate getting those from you. I, I kind of wish more people would drop me notes like that. I think they're a lot of fun and uh, a lot of good stuff to think about. Certainly a lot of good thoughts in what you were saying, lots of threads to pull apart there. Uh, so much so that I'm I'm not really sure where to begin. Honestly, I guess because we were talking about McLuhan initially, I'll st- I'll start there. I think I think the centering of the maelstrom image is actually really helpful in the way that that you're talking about, and if we apply that to something like capitalism, uh, which is I think the way we were you know using that metaphor when we were talking to Andrew, though maybe delimiting that more to media as such, to whatever extent that is possible. The idea that there are specific lines of movement within the maelstrom of capitalism, the sort of seeming inevitability of its inertia and pull, and that there are, yeah, maybe we can say lines of flight that appear uh, not, not necessarily as uh, some escape trajectory that imagines uh, any outside to capitalism. I mean, I think in a sense, this is what the mushroom at the end of the world that you mentioned is talking about, or just at least describes it, uh, at at times. That among the things that capitalism produces is the creation of conditions for the possibility of resisting the deterministic quality of capitalism, um, right? And that that's that's one of the things that drives people to the mountains and forests of Oregon uh, to pick mushrooms and and. Live this sort of life that's off the grid and invisible to capitalism also fully within it. Um, and so yeah, I think what you're saying is true uh, to some extent. Radical theology as a discourse, I think, has often taken on this bombastic quality, one that makes proclamations and what can sound like you know universal claims. It's very much a prophetic discourse in that way, you know, and I, I think that's just part of uh, theological discourse to a large extent, you know, radical theology is born out of Protestantism. And, um, I think there may be something interesting there to think about in terms of, of scale, as you were saying, uh, and the, the incommensurability sometimes of the particular and the universal that theology, I think often wants to, uh, maybe brush aside or, or minimize so that it can make these, kinds of totalizing statements Uh, i should think it's just like comes with the territory and and i think you're right radical theology theology as such has tended to fold multiplicity into the singular and to begin in abstraction and i think there can be some value to that um but like this is one of the things i was trying to get at when i was talking to mary jane rubenstein recently about this tendency within theology (coughs) excuse me uh that's basically a kind of methodological monotheism. And I, and I think this is where something like new materialism can be really helpful. Uh, not exactly as a, as a corrective, but as maybe a, a sister discipline where a radical theological method uh, is one that would continue to follow in the sort of Tulikian and Winquistian. is is that a word, Christian? within those traditions of of thinking uh, ultimacy and desire together. But then in terms of how that sort of analysis gets produced in the way that I think you were getting at, uh, by by closely tracing uh, or, or unbundling these discursive and material lines, I think that can be a really important part of a contemporary radical theological method. And actually, in that part of the interview was where Andrew was also talking about how Edgar Allan Poe invented the modern detective novel. I forget the name of the character that he came up with, you know, detective something, right? Um, but, it, but it's this idea of paying super close attention to, to any given thing and, and following it out uh, in an investigative way and how that was what McLuhan was up to in a, in a certain sense. And so, yeah, I think the sort of linkage that we're trying to get at here, uh, it's difficult to really put your finger on it. It feels slippery. And in terms of thinking about or starting from the medium of the mess, the medium is the message, um, and intuiting a connection to Barad's work, you know, that wants to blur the line, if not outright conjugate matter with meaning. I think the piece I've been missing. Uh, or I had been missing previously is is the apparatus, right? So if we, if we bring the apparatus to bear on the media is the message, then I think you can begin to see more clearly the specific ways in which technology forms of media uh, create the environment, which is to say the apparatus, uh, the, the the parameters of discourse in the, in the Foucauldian sense, uh, materially considered. It's all a bit of a mess, frankly. Um, and, and I don't know if any of that is particularly helpful. <laughs> um, but I do feel like the constellation of questions um, we're, we're getting at is uh, important. And uh, yeah, just worth keeping after. So I think that's all I've got to say about that for now. Uh, all right, man. Have a good one. Bye.